Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. My name is Alex Castillo-Smith, and I'm with the New Mexico Human Services Department. Thank you for joining us for this COVID-19 update. Um, I'm, we are joined by our esteemed colleague, Secretary Tracy Collins for the New Mexico Department of Health and, and, and Secretary Dr. Davis Grace for the New Mexico Human Services Department. Um, we are first going to have a vaccine update from Secretary Collins, followed by a science and epidemiology update um, by Dr. Grace. And then we will turn it over to questions from the members of the media who've joined us this afternoon. I think with that, um, I will conclude my remarks and turn it over to you, Secretary Collins. Thank you, Alex. So I'm gonna spend a few minutes providing an update on our vaccines and where we are. So as of January 24th, we've had 221,375 doses delivered to New Mexico. And of those, we've administered 92.1%, or 203,000, 830. So that's really good news. So in the last seven days, we've administered 58,000 plus doses, nearly doubling our pace um, prior in the prior two weeks. And we are the third highest, New Mexico, third highest vaccine administration rate among all states in the country. So we have a lot to be proud of. I do want to remind you of the vaccine registration website, which is vaccinenm.org. As of today, we've had more than half a million New Mexicans who've registered. We encourage all New Mexicans to register and we will reach out when a vaccine appointment is available. I wanna reiterate who is currently eligible for a vaccine. As you know, phase 1A included hospital personnel, congregate setting workers, persons providing direct medical care and home-based healthcare and hospice workers. We are in the first two subgroups of phase 1B, and that includes persons 75 or older, or persons who are 16 or older with at least one chronic condition that puts them at risk for complications from COVID. So within phase 1A, we have that entire group within the red box, and for 1B, it's those top two bullets that we're currently vaccinating, persons 75 or older, or persons who are 16 or older with a chronic condition. And I want to reiterate, when we talk about who's currently eligible for vaccine, if you're hospital personnel, a resident or staff of a long-term care facility, a medical first responder, you are now eligible, as well as those who are 75 or older or who are 16 or older with at least one chronic condition. So I want to help us think about what the key issues are with vaccine distribution we have nearly 800,000 New Mexicans who are eligible for vaccine right now. However, we're receiving about 25 to 30,000 doses of vaccine per week as the primer dose. So we can vaccinate up to 30,000 New Mexicans each week. But if you look at what the demand is compared to the supply, we ultimately need more vaccine and we are advocating for more vaccine, but it may take several months to vaccinate currently eligible populations based on our current supply. And we're hoping and keeping our eyes open for options for more vaccine to be available in the coming months. I really want vaccine providers to know we're grateful for you distributing vaccine. It is very important that you know what our guidance is on distributing vaccine and that you follow our guidance. We must go in sequence 
And we must ensure that vaccine goes to those who are at highest risk of serious disease and death from COVID-19. And we're currently implementing a technical fix to prevent sharing of event codes. So if you want to learn more about the full distribution plan, please visit cb.nmhealth.org COVID-vaccine. Thank you. Dr. Scrace. Thanks, Dr. Collins. Uh, just want to compliment you again at what a great job the state is in delivering uh, vaccine and where we rank in the United States. Uh, I just thought it would be worth uh, one slide. I don't do this very often, but we've passed the first anniversary of the first confirmed COVID-19 case in the United States. It was on January 21st, a year ago in uh, Washington state. Now, uh, one year and three days later, we've had more than 25 million cases, 400, over 400,000 deaths. Uh, we had more, more than 4,000 deaths per day last Wednesday and Thursday, which were two or three of the highest daily death tolls we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, 37 states, however, including New Mexico, are reporting de declines now in the total daily case counts. I'll show you that for us. But then some of our near neighbors are struggling with, again, another upsurge and uptick in cases. The, the map kind of shows the green areas being the best and the really, really dark red areas being severe outbreaks. And you can see that New Mexico, a little bit of green here, and uh, but mostly red, but it's not dark, dark red. And so we're making some improvements in our state uh, that we should be happy about. And some of what I have today to share is, uh, most of it is really actually good news. I wanna talk a little bit about therapy. I know that there was some discussion of that this morning with the hospitals, but uh, New Mexico <clears throat> has worked really hard over uh, the period of the pandemic to implement new therapeutics. I'll just review them with you as I go through the numbers in a minute, but I did wanna highlight that if you have a positive COVID test, you are over the age of 12, and you, you have a one single risk factor for severe uh, COVID disease or, or you're over the age of 65, which is a risk factor, you're eligible for one of these treatments. The sooner you get it, the better. And so this is available on the CDC, uh, uh, a CDC or HHS website where you can identify those locations. We've worked hard this week to make sure that everybody delivering, particularly bamlanivimab but all of these therapies is listed on the federal website. So you can just look it up. Just got an email from an old friend wanting to know where he could go. And I, I sent him the link to this website. It only shows places that have given five or more courses of treatment, just so you know that. So there are a few more in our state. <clears throat> just a reminder, remdesivir is that inpatient treatment that shortens hospitalization, reduces death rates, this is a bar graph of weekly use of remdesivir. We started in the summer and you can see it's really been dramatically high, uh, particularly in the November period. This does parallel hospitalization rates. And so this decline here is uh, on the right side of the graph is not bad news. It just means that we are seeing a decrease in hospitalizations and therefore less people to treat. But New Mexico has been one of the best states in terms of getting on board and our hospitals have adopted this and virtually every hospital is administering it. 
the outpatient treatments of bamlanivimab and, and Regeneron. Uh, bamlanivimab, <clears throat> you can see, particularly if you squint, that since November when it first got approved, you got a gradual increase. Uh, we're, we're push, we're, we want to push that higher. We do have a, a, a research trial that's starting soon with Eli Lilly to uh, try to find newer and more efficient ways to deliver bamlanivimab, but major systems now have online portals you can use to find out information or find out if you're qualified or even refer yourself. Loveless in particular allows that. It's always also good to talk with your provider when you get that news about your positive test and to see if uh, she agrees that you're a candidate uh, for treatment as well. Uh, Regeneron picking up a little more slowly. It's a little more complicated that this y-axis is a little more spread out than this one, but because they're two drugs, but we're making progress there as well and really encouraging these treatments. Uh, hospitalizations, good news. Uh, finally, our hospitals are feeling a little bit of let up. ICU is still quite full though, which is a, a challenge. And uh, we really appreciate all our delivery partners who are going out of their way to uh, work extra hours and expand other parts of their hospital into intensive care units. I've been showing these maps of how many open beds we have around the state. In the past three or four times I've shown it, almost every single number has been zero. We still have some areas that are pretty tight, but if you look at on the left ICU beds and at the right on general medical beds available for COVID patients, you can see that things are indeed easing up and we even have some double digit numbers in, in Clovis and in, uh, in Albuquerque as well. So, uh, our hospital partners are still very busy providing vaccinations and taking care of all these coronavirus patients and trying to get antibody treatments up and running, but they are experiencing a little bit of relief, which is what we're really hoping to see. The gating criteria, we haven't paid too much attention to these lately, but they are now, uh, we all ought to be watching them closely and what is uh, coming up. Uh, some of the data isn't as updated as you're used to, because we're doing this on a Monday instead of a Wednesday or Thursday, but our spread rate is good. Case count's still about five times higher than uh, we'd like to see them, uh, uh, but coming down, it used to be 10 times higher. Testing still maintaining uh, a great pace. And this is a really important number, our test positivity rate, which has been in double digits for months and months, is now 7.3. We wanna see it get below five, and the reason that's so important is when we're above 5% on test positivity rate, it means in general, we don't have a lot of confidence that we're seeing all the cases, that everybody who has an active case that could spread it to others is, is getting tested and reporting it. So this is a sign, an early sign maybe, that we're now, uh, <clears throat> along with case counts, getting the pandemic under better control. Last week, our contact tracing times looked good, well within our targets. Hospital uh, uh, capacity starting to ease back down. It's 301 uh, for ICUs. Our, our, our total capacity is 290 at baseline. So we're still a little bit above 100% but doing well. So I'm just gonna close uh, with the, so cases are coming down, that's great. And test positivity is coming down and that's great. Uh, case counts are still quite high. You know, we're not into that yellow and green range we wanna be in uh, the majority of counties, but if we do keep washing our hands, 
getting tested, staying six feet from others, wearing a mask, staying at home whenever possible, and working from home when able. Uh, I think we're going to continue to see progress. I, we, Alex put in the symptoms for coronavirus. It's good to, to just mention these, fever, cough, shortness of breath, you know, chills, headaches, muscle pain, sore throat, and, and loss of taste or smell. All of these are characteristic for influenza, except for the loss of taste or smell. And, but we, the good news is we also have not seen much influenza. So same basic message. And uh, now we're gonna open it up for your questions. Thank you, Secretaries Collins and Scrace. First, I'm gonna turn over uh, to Matt Grubbs. Got it. Thanks, Alex. And I'm with New Mexico PBS. Um, Dr. Collins, uh, based on your comments, uh, and I know that the state's timeline for vaccinations has been sort of parts of seasons, and I suspect that's because you can't predict the supply chain, but it sounds like you're backing off that just a little bit. Um, and then also for both of you, um, I'm wondering how the European experience with some of these variants uh, informs what you're expecting in the coming weeks. Thank you. Yes, so thank you, Matt. In regards to the supply chain, yes, we're just being very cautious because we have to see what the allocation is gonna be each week. And we're keeping our eyes open to see if that's going to increase, which we hope. But for now, we're using a conservative estimate of when we can get everyone vaccinated. Yeah, and, and Matt, on the variants, I would uh, say that we're watching that really closely. We have a monitoring system in place, as luck would have it, one of our machines that does COVID tests actually provides a identification of the London variant without uh, having to, it's highly predictive that when you run the genetic sequence, which takes now four days, that it will be that. We've had two of those cases so far in the state, uh, none of the South African one. I think the data is still bubbling out there and being researched about whether uh, the vaccines will cover both. And I think there's a fairly good feeling that uh, the vaccine should, both uh, versions should be effective for the England or London variant. And I think we don't have enough data to give an answer on the South African one, but very hopeful, obviously, that uh, the vaccine will provide us all uh, coverage for as many strains as possible. A lot of these vaccines are aimed at two or three different proteins on the virus. So all of them would have to mutate to a new configuration to render a vaccine completely ineffective. Thank you, everyone. So next we'll turn over to Matthew Reitbach with the New Mexico Political Report. Thanks, as she said, Matthew Reitbach, New Mexico Political Report. Um, I was just wondering, I had some questions on the vaccine. Um, what can New Mexico do to get more doses of the vaccines, if anything? Or are we just waiting on the federal government to make decisions? And how long of a uh, lead time do you get before you know how many you're going to get the next week? Thanks. Yes. <clears throat> so thank you, Matthew. Yes, we are waiting on the federal government. It's really their discretion. Certainly, we can advocate for more doses and highlight the needs that we have in the state. And that's what we're doing. Um, and so as far as lead time, we know within the week of what we're going to get the following week. And so that's what we base our orders on. Thank you, Secretary Collins. And so next, I'll turn over to Julia Goldberg, Santa Fe reporter. Go ahead, Julia. 
Thank you, Alex. Um, this is Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter. Um, I have two and a half questions. Uh, my first question, I, probably just me not understanding, but given that there's been challenges with providers um, giving the vaccine out in the sub following sequencing for the subphases, what is the reason for having so many groups in one subphase? Would it not have been, why not have different, more sub more phases rather than more uh, subphases? That's my first um, confused question. Oh, and the half of it was, I wondered if you had a breakdown of those 203,000 or so vaccines in terms of which demographics um, have gotten them. And then my second question relates to the most recent mortality report. I wondered if there was a sense of why in New Mexico hypertension as an underlying condition had emerged as the top condition present um, in COVID-19 deaths. I noticed it's on New Mexico's list of qualifying conditions for receiving a vaccine. Um, and actually the CDC doesn't include it in its top list. And I assumed we did because of those mortality reports, but I just wondered if it's because we have a high percentage of people who have that or what you thought was going on. Uh, thank you so much. Yes, oh, thank you, Julia. So in regards to the sequencing and the various groups, we really did review the CDC recommendations and ASIP to get an understanding of what we should do as far as prioritizing the doses. And it's an issue of the supply demand um, where the demand you know, outstrips the supply. And so while I can understand you're saying it's confusing, the frontline um, healthcare workers, medical responders in 1A, and looking at 1B, and starting with those who are 75 or older, and then those with a chronic condition, those groups are most at risk for a serious complication or death from COVID. So we set this up in a way that we could go down the list and, and get people vaccinated as more supply came in based on who was in a higher priority. So we have established our phases based on recommendations and also looking at the available supply of vaccine. So as far as the breakdown of the 203,000, we do have information on demographics and looking at counties, but I don't have that information here today for you. And then uh, do you wanna to speak to the mortality issue, uh, Dr. Yeah, I will. Um, Julia, when I heard you were in the queue, I pulled up all the weekly epidemiology reports, so I'd be ready. And uh, I do have the mortality report up. This might be the page you're referring to and you're pointing out that hypertension is now the number one underlying condition. And, and then you asked about why the CDC doesn't pull it out. Uh, sometimes hypertension is included in cardiovascular disease. Sometimes it's listed as a, sep a separate one. Hypertension is considered a vascular disease. And so that's why it can be neither one. That might be the difference between uh, CDC and us, but I'll do some more research. We'll get back to you. Uh, I think that the main though reason is uh, uh, that hypertension is at the top of the list is it's the most frequent uh, condition, uh, medical condition that people tend to have. And you know, in my uh, patient population, which is over the age of 75, I think uh, white females have 75% of them, have uh, 60 to 75% may have hypertension. So it's very, very common. So probably it's commonality is up there. Whereas diabetes, I would contrast you know, only maybe 12 or 13% of New Mexicans have that, but because it impairs the immune system and, and creates so many other uh, challenges to responding 
to infections, that it's it's much higher in the list than otherwise would be represented. And in, uh, I was gonna go to the next one too, percentage of deaths by underlying condition and age group. This is people over 65 where maybe, I don't know, 50 to 60% of people over 65 may have developed high blood pressure. And you can see it's 77 and then younger age group 22, which is a little higher as well. So it is a risk factor, but a little bit more, uh, probably what's driving its place on the list is the fact that it's so common in, uh, in America and in New Mexicans in general. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. So next we'll turn over to Kate Bieri with KVIA. Hi there, thank you for having me. This is Kate Bury with KVIA. And my question for Dr. Collins is, last week the state of New Mexico moved forward with vaccinating hundreds of educators only to reverse course and cancel hundreds of appointments. We know that there were at least 1,400 cancellations for educator appointments in Southern New Mexico alone. We also know that at least 900 educators have received their first dose already in Southern New Mexico. So I have to ask just what happened? Um, and then my second question is, when does the state plan to release county specific data like Texas? Thank you. Yes, thank you, Kay. So we had problems with internal communication in the department, which led to confusion. And that led to us having to cancel these events because again, it was not in the order that we've outlined for who's currently to be vaccinated. So I really apologize for that. It should not have happened. Um, and moving forward, we have worked diligently to create a plan to ensure that communication lines are constantly open up and down the chain so that we don't see this happen again. And what was your second question? Um, my second question was, when does the state plan to release county specific data? I know that Texas has um, data on their website that shows the breakdown of how many doses have been administered in various Texas counties, including, you know, the population that is eligible to receive the vaccine in those counties. Thank you. Yes. So on our dashboard currently, we have what are available doses in a given area throughout the state. But as far as county level data, we are working to make sure that our data is accurate and then we can share more moving forward. Thank you, everyone. So next we'll go to Brittany Bade with KRQE. Thank you, Alex, and thank you, Dr. Collins and Dr. Scrace. I have two questions for Dr. Collins and uh, one for Dr. Scrace. So Dr. Collins, um, how many people a day are actually getting just their first vaccin vaccination shot? If you have that number, um, aside from the total number, how many people are just getting their first shot a day? And then we also know that right now, um, the people who can get vaccines are 75 and up or people who have a pre-existing condition. We have been hearing that people are not being honest when it comes to having a pre-existing condition, like they're lying about a heart, heart condition or having diabetes just to get a shot and basically jump the line. Are you aware of people doing that? And is anything being done to kind of double check that people who are getting the vaccine should really be um, so as far as on average, the number of vaccines we're getting into arms each day, it's about 7,000 on average. And as far as um, 
people jumping the line. Of course, you're going to have people who are not honest, but we do have an attestation on the website when you register that you confirm that you're actually being honest. We do ask people just to do your best because, you know, this is a time where everybody is trying to get the vaccine and we don't have enough. So we've had to prioritize those groups most at risk. And if you jump the line, you're actually allowing for someone else to wait who's really in need of this vaccine and who's at risk of serious complications. So we have heard stories about that and we're trying to work to ensure that people are honest. And this is what we have to offer at this time. Yeah, there was one more question for me. Yes, thank you, Dr. Grace. So the number of nursing home, uh, you know, residents and staff, we know that if they've, if they wanted the vaccine, they have the vaccine. So on the daily list, we're still seeing, you know, a considerable amount of deaths coming from nursing homes of residents at nursing homes. Is there a time that you think nursing home deaths could really level off or drop significantly as they are all, you know, vaccinated now? Uh, that's a great question, and uh, I'm not as good at seeing into the future as I am uh, seeing into the past. But I think it would. Let me <laughs> let me qualify my answer, and then I'll I'll tell you what I really think. But that will. I, and I just happened coincidentally to spend a good part of the weekend working with Secretary Hotram Lopez, sort of pouring over the nursing facility vaccination data. But there are a couple variables that will drive the answer to your question. Number one is what percent of patients who are offered the vaccine will take it. And it looks like we're running uh, in the 70% range. Second is what percent of staff who are offered the vaccine will take it. And we're running in the 60 to 70% range. And then the third thing that really is operational here, and I think kind of the essence of your question is uh, how long will it take? So. Just let's just walk through the reminder. Number one, you get your first vaccine and uh, you wait three or four weeks. With Moderna, you wait four weeks. And then you wait, wait about two or three weeks after that before there's a confidence that you have immunity. And you might wanna add a week because in older people that immune system is slower to respond. So right there, you've got two months on average uh, you would add. And then plus there's that lag, you know, there's a, as we just talked about earlier, a four week lag between case counts going up and, and coming down. So I, I sort of am thinking that in uh, two or three months, we will start to see a significant change. I think to the extent that staff or residents decline to be vaccinated, that always allows for the potential for spread and I would encourage anybody listening today who's got a family member in a nursing facility to uh, really consider being a strong advocate for your family member to get the vaccine. And, and I would probably even encourage you to uh, <clears throat> encourage the administrative staff and nurses and, and the like in the nursing facility about uh, how important it is to you that uh, they all get vaccinated as well. I mean, you don't, we don't all have the ability to force that. It's an experimental vaccine, but at the end of the day, the higher percentage of people who work and live in nursing homes that are vaccinated, the, the quicker and the more persistent we'll see that decline absent new changes like variants that might be resistant. Thank you, everyone. So next, we'll turn over to Chris McKee with KRQE. 
Thank you very much. Again, yeah, Chris McKee here at KRQE. Um, I had one quick question about teachers and vaccinations. Um, obviously, supply is an issue at this point, but do you have any idea of when teachers might expect a vaccination sort of clinic to be available to them once again after uh, what happened last week? Um, and then really quick, going to the Biden administration. Um, I think this is one of the first chances we've all got to talk to you since the presidential administration has shifted. And we know that just from the national reporting that President Biden has worked to overhaul the pandemic response and his staff on it. Um, have you guys in your conversations with the folks at the federal level noticed any differences yet in how the Trump administration was treating the vaccine? Um, I should just say the COVID response effort and the vaccination effort um, along compared to how the Biden administration is. And, and maybe how does that play into New Mexico trying to secure more vaccines? Because when I think about it, everybody wants these vaccines no more than anyone else, it seems. So it seems like a really tough sell to convince the government to say, hey, hand us more versus some other state right now. Thank you. Yes, so thank you. In regards to the teachers and vaccinations, please keep in mind that it's not an isolated group. You can actually be a teacher with a chronic condition or older and you'd be eligible for the vaccine. Given our current supply, we're looking at a few weeks out before we can open this up to the next group. And so please keep your eyes open for um, any announcements on additional supply because that will allow us to then move to open it up to another group. But right now, for the next several weeks, we'll be focused on the groups that are currently being vaccinated. Um, in regards to the Biden administration, um, from my perspective, I've seen a very much an attention to detail and wanting to quickly act and get input from the states on how we can help you. And so I think it's been very positive. Dr. Strace? Yeah, a couple of quick comments. One is one of the things that of course you'll know that I love is that specific numeric goals are being set uh, over time to uh, you know, vaccinate 100 a million people in 100 days and, and things like that. And so I think any time you start putting numbers to something and committing to it, it gets you to a new level of being able to analyze supply chains and, and figure out what you need to do to increase uh, vaccine output to the states. The other thing that's like a super big deal to me that isn't included in your question, but I have to talk about is that on Friday, <clears throat> the Biden administration indicated that in all likelihood, the public health emergency will be extended uh, through the end of 2021 calendar year. And uh, for those of you who don't run Medicaid programs uh, on the line here, that is an overwhelmingly positive development for us. That simple statement is worth uh, another uh, $210 million of revenue from the federal government for our Medicaid program, which really helps because we have 100,000 more people on Medicaid right now. So I think, I think I'm sensing <clears throat> as the human services secretary, a much uh, greater awareness of the impact that this sort of making these little announcements every three months uh, was having on uh, human service programs around the country, Medicaid programs around the country. And this really gives us the ability to plan for our budget next year and to know uh, uh, pretty well where we're going to stand at least through December. So that 
<clears throat> I mean, I actually heard the news and actually got up and did, little, did a little dance. Uh, some people on this call witnessed that. I won't repeat it today, but that's really a big deal for New Mexico, $210 million for uh, 100,000 additional enrollees in Medicaid uh, over the nine months, uh, basically nine months starting April 21st. Thank you, everyone. I will go and read a question on behalf of Nathan O'Neill from KOB. So Nathan O'Neill from KOB writes, we've heard reports of private schools getting their teachers vaccinated over the weekend in a vaccination clinic, specifically Sandia Prep. Are either of you aware of this? Secondly, are private schools supposed to be treated the same as public schools in the vaccination schedules? So I'm a, I appreciate the question, and I am aware that there have been instances where teachers are going to be vaccinated, and we've had to make phone calls to remind people, vaccine providers, to follow the order. And I want to reiterate the importance of that. If you are a vaccine provider, do follow our guidance. If you have questions, do reach out to us. Um, and Dr. Grace, do you want to add to that? I, I think we had a conversation before this also that there's been some recent concern that everyone needs to get a note from their doctor, you know, to, to justify their medical condition. And one, the order doesn't say that. It says we all ought to be prepared to, if asked, show that we're telling the truth about our underlying medical history. Two, it would put an enormous burden on the healthcare system and actually slow down the vaccination process if <clears throat> doctors and physicians assistants and nurse practitioners had to drop what they were doing and write individual notes read that uh, guidance carefully, a prescription bottle, a, uh, a discharge summary. You know, most of us go to the doctor now and you get an electronic summary of your visit. Any of those diagnoses on there will work as well. So uh, I think that's what I had. I don't know if that's what you're thinking, Tracy, but that's what I, I wanted to say. Did we get the second question? I didn't write it down fast enough. Alex? Can I can repeat it. It's, are private schools supposed to be treated the same as public schools in the vaccination schedule? There's no difference between private and public schools in the vaccination schedule. Thank you, Secretary Collins. Okay, with that, I'll turn over to Algernon Damasa with the Las Cruces Sun News. Thank you. This is just a quick follow-up um, regarding what happened with teachers last week. Um, um, a number of teachers got their initial doses. Will those teachers be eligible to go ahead and get their second dose um, uh, based on the vaccine schedule? That's all. Thanks. Yes, thank you. In all fairness to those who received their first dose, they really do need to receive their second, so they will be eligible. Thank you, Secretary Collins. Uh, next, I'll turn to Cristal Corrales with Telemundo. Thank you, Alex. Um, hello, I'm Cristal Corrales from Telemundo in El Paso. My question is for Dr. Collins. Um, going back to the, the teachers and educators that were vaccinated, have all the school districts, public and private in the state, been notified about the importance of following the subgroups in phase 1B? Thank you, Crystal. Yes, they have. We worked with um, Secretary Stewart to make sure that we're getting information out through the superintendents and to the school districts so that they're clear on where we are and who's eligible for vaccine at this time. Thank you, everyone. We have two more reporters with their hands in the queue. 
uh, first Ryan Battelle with the Albuquerque Journal, and then Megan Abundus with KOB. Hi, doctors. This is Ryan at the Journal. Thanks for taking my question. Um, earlier, uh, uh, Dr. Collins said there were 700,000 to 800,000 New Mexicans currently eligible for the vaccine. Um, I was wondering, does, or does that number just represent the folks in the two uh, 1B subsets who are eligible? Um, could you break it down into how many are 75 and older and how many um, have a, a chronic condition? And, and also, does, do those numbers uh, include the 200 or so thousand uh, doses that have already been distributed and the, the 1A workers who have already been vaccinated? Thank you. Yes, yeah, so that 700,000 to 800,000 represents the 1A and the first two groups in 1B. So we're talking healthcare personnel, about 138,000, more than 150,075 and older, and then those about 466,000 who have a chronic condition. So those numbers add up to about 800,000. Thank you, everyone. And finally, uh, Megan Abundus with KOB. Thank you so much. It's Megan with KOB. We just two, have two questions. How soon can we expect to expand the next phase of vaccine? And have there been any other instances where the vaccine needed to be disposed because of an error? Thank you. So we've not disposed any more vaccine because of errors and really the available supply will dictate when we can begin to open up to additional groups to be vaccinated. And I, I just like to uh, give a shout out to the people who are delivering the vaccines. We know of other states where vaccine has had to be wasted. And uh, I, I now, uh, uh, my wife is now heavily involved in vaccinating cancer patients. And if they have two doses and it's, you know, 4.30 at night and two people haven't shown up as scheduled to get their vaccine, they get on the phone and they're calling people in. Can you come over right now to get your vaccine? So, uh, you know, it's kind of a miracle that we haven't had to do this. It's a testimony to the conscientiousness of all the, all the vaccine providers who are really making sure that we don't waste doses. And I think that's a key part of why we're at you know, in the top five in the country right now is that uh, efficiency and making sure that every shot at the end of the day is, is in somebody's arm. Thank you, secretaries. Those are all of our questions. Any closing remarks, uh, <clears throat> Secretary Collins? You know, I just appreciate what everyone's doing to try and get uh, New Mexicans vaccinated. I appreciate the providers. I appreciate following our guidance. And I, I am encouraged that with the new administration, the supply will go up. And thank you for your time. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to say too that uh, I really wanna thank all the people of New Mexico for wearing your masks and doing those things that are, we know until most of us are vaccinated are the key way of managing that pandemic, masks, distancing, hand washing, staying at home. Thank you for that. And, and just one, uh, again, thank you to the media for helping us to explain uh, some, what ends up being some really complicated stuff uh, to the people of New Mexico without your daily reporting and updates. Uh, I don't think we'd be where we are. And I, and I actually think that this interest that we're seeing, a, I believe we're seeing a significant uptick in interest in the vaccine. 
And I think that's in large part because the information you all are getting out to people, uh, letting them know who it's available for, when it's going to be available. So uh, I want to thank everybody uh, for that as well. We're doing extremely well. And uh, as, as has been identified today, now the question is, how do we get more vaccine uh, so we can give it to more people? With that, Alex, I'm going to turn it back to you to close us out. Thank you, secretaries. Um, and with that, um, have a good afternoon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.